morning. Uh, today we are uh, starting a new uh, three-week series called The Sounds of Easter. And um, a lot of times uh, we read uh, the Easter story or uh, there's been multiple movies uh, made about the Easter story. And uh, so we, we have it visually. And uh, this year we want to try to listen. We want to try to listen to Easter. And so we're going to be in it um, uh, this Sunday, next Sunday, and the third Sunday. And then in between uh, the, the week of Easter, uh, we have uh, Good Friday service. Uh, going to be outdoors this year around a fire. And uh, so want to encourage you to come out for that. That'll be a um, kind of a different uh, service and uh, unique and uh, kind of interesting. So we want to invite you to Good Friday as well. Uh, let me go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll, get, we'll get started on today's message, right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, may we listen uh, to the sounds of Easter. Uh, may we be uh, moved again uh, by the story of, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, may we become different and better people because of it. We thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever uh, been a part of a crowd uh, that started to feel like it was getting out of control? Uh, we had a, a friend, Cheryl and I have a friend uh, that was at the Final Four last night. Uh, he went, uh, drove all that way to watch Michigan State lose, unfortunately, but um, uh, he, was out, he was out there for that game. And the first game of that evening was really controversial. Uh, Auburn, Virginia, and Virginia ended up winning it, but it was a really controversial ending. And he was kind of texting uh, Cheryl and I and, and talking about, this is a really uneasy crowd, right? Uh, the Auburn fans feel like they got robbed and they're really ticked off about it, you know? And it, it, it kind of started to feel like that crowd could get out of control. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a, of a crowd like that. A lot, we always hear these stories like around uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving, right? Uh, Black Friday where, where some guy gets trampled over a big screen TV. You know, uh, those stories. And I was uh, doing a little research and I came across this article and it was not intended to be a funny article, but it kind of cracked me up. It was about prep time uh, for the Friday after Thanksgiving, you know, so you can be ready for the sale sort of thing. And it was stuff that you would normally expect to see, like make your shopping list first and check all the online deals and uh, pick a shopping buddy who will match your pace. You know, you don't want to be with someone who's going to slow you down, right? Uh, bring the ads with you, you know. Forget grandma, she's, you know, that, you don't want to do that. All right, you want to be prepared to return things. You want to, uh, they said, you know, use a credit card because sometimes your credit card will honor things that the store wouldn't honor. Uh, if you don't need electronics, don't even go there. Uh, but where it turned funny was this piece of advice. That was the last piece of advice in the article, is our advice is just don't go at all, <laughs> right? I said, that is really, really fun. You'll never be a part of a crowd that is gonna get out of control if you never put yourself in that position, right? And uh, so I want you to open up your Bibles. We're actually going to be, this is going to sound like an apology and it's not, but we're going to be in a ton of scripture today. I'm going to share a lot of scripture with you. So we're going to be in Matthew 21 and Luke 23, uh, but uh, it's all going to be on the slides for you as well if, if you're taking notes. And um, today I want to introduce you to a crowd, uh, the week of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection that started out in one position and very quickly turned out of control. 
right? Very quickly, the crowd turned out of control. And I want to share with us this story so that we might um, avoid the same thing. The the story starts in Jerusalem. There's multiple lessons I think we're going to learn from these stories. But the story starts uh, just outside of Jerusalem when Jesus is getting ready to enter for what would be the week before his death, burial, and and resurrection. It's the beginning of the Easter story, really, of of Easter week. And uh, here's here's the story. Uh, This is in Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there uh, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. That always cracks me. Hey, you're taking my my donkey. The Lord needs it, all right? And uh, he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is that? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I want to take you back. Can you hear the sound of the crowd? And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, this reaction on the road that day seems absolutely right on. They're spreading their cloaks on the road as a sign of respect. They're worshiping him. They're holding him in high regard. They are recognizing, some of them for the first time, who he is and what he came to be. This is like their Super Bowl. They're actually quoting a psalm, uh, Psalm 118, and there's another portion of the psalm that actually points to Jesus. Let me show you this text. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we will bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And so the belief amongst the Jewish people was that God was going to build his kingdom and God was going to build his house and God was going to build his nation. But before he did that, he was going to lay the first piece of it, the cornerstone, and that the cornerstone was going to be the Messiah. The cornerstone was going to be the Savior. And the cornerstone was going to ensure that the kingdom stood strong, that the house remained intact, that things went exactly the way they were, they were to go. But the first stone had to be laid. And in this moment, they are recognizing Jesus as that cornerstone, that he is the first brick. He is the first stone in the movement, in the kingdom, in the house of God, and he's being praised exactly for that. Now, let's have a little context here just for a moment. At the time of Jesus' life, Rome was occupying Israel, um, and uh, it was a difficult occupation. Israel didn't feel like they could be the nation God created them to be while Rome was occupying their country. And as Americans, you can kind of understand this, all right, as people that live in the United States. If we had an 
another nation occupying our country, taxing us, developing laws to control us, telling us what to do, it would not go over super well, right? And this is exactly what they were living under. Rome was that occupying force, uh, taxing them, controlling them, developing those laws, and it was a problem. So while Jesus is being recognized as the cornerstone here, People very much had an expectation of what the cornerstone was going to do. That the cornerstone, the Messiah, the Savior, he was going to do something about Rome so Israel could be strong, so that the house could be sturdy, so that the kingdom could flourish, that the the Messiah, the Savior, he would do something about Rome. He'd kick them out once and for all, and Israel could be the nation it was created to be, and I'm telling you, it was over this issue that I just described to you, it was over this issue that the crowd, over one week, one week's time, the crowd changed. And they moved from adoring fans to calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. Let me show it to you. It says, Pilate called together the chief priests, and one week later, Pilate called together the chief priests and rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man who was inciting the people to rebellion. This is Jesus's Uh, trial with uh, Pilate. He says, I have examined him in your presence. I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him, and then I will release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for the insurrection in the city and for murder cheered for a murderer to be released over Jesus. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the loud shouts, but with loud shouts, they incessantly demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and one they asked for, and they surrendered, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. And if you imagine it, can you hear the crowd now? inside of a week, my, how the perception of Jesus changed. One day they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And here's my question, maybe it's yours as well. What on earth happened? What happened over those few days? Because I think there's a powerful lesson to learn here. What happened to turn the crowds against Jesus? And I am so glad you asked that question, right? There are three things. Three things. I never was good at math, right? Three things, right? That happened. And the first one is this, right? That during that week of, of last week, uh, the first thing that happened was Jesus drove out the money changers, 
All right, so let me put this story on the slide for you. It's really interesting. Jesus entered the temple courts, right? This is shortly after his triumphal entry and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So two big things are happening in this story, all right? In between the triumphal entry where they're shouting praise and the, the crowd shouting crucify him, two big things are happening in this particular story. One is Jesus is attacking an accepted, principle, an accepted practice that made a lot of people a lot of money. All right, so that's the first thing that's happening. He's attacking this accepted practice that made people rich. And the accepted practice was that you would travel to Jerusalem every year, you and your family would travel there and you would offer sacrifices for Passover. And you were supposed to offer a lamb, but a lamb was really expensive to do. And so the Old Testament allowed for you, if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could do a couple of doves, a couple of birds, right? And uh, the, the, the temple, uh, the, the Old Testament allowed for that. And so the practice that is happening here is that people that couldn't afford a lamb are going to the temple to buy the birds and they are being gouged. They are being overcharged. This is not a story against bingo in the church. I heard that all my life. This is a story against playing bingo. This is not, and I don't have an opinion on that at all. I like to win bingo, but that's neither here nor there. All right, um, <laughs> if you ever want to play with me, I'm really good. But um, this isn't a story about bingo. This is a story about abusive practices toward the poor. Right? And so this was an accepted practice. People were getting rich off this. And Jesus gets really angry about it because they are hurting and taking advantage of those that were in the most vulnerable position, those that were hurting and struggling. And so Jesus drove them out of the temple area and said, this is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. So, so that's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening in this story is Jesus is affirming the praise of the children. They are shouting, uh, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They are praising his name. You are the savior. You are the Messiah. You are the cornerstone. And the, the, the religious leaders of the day were indignant, angry. They said, Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying about you? And he said, have you not read from the lips of children you have ordained praise? Right? So he is affirming the, 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 the worship of these children. And it really ticked off, all right, very technical term there, but it really ticked off the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of law. All right? So that's first incident. Second incident is Jesus preaches a sermon. And in the course of this sermon, he tells three stories. And story number one is a parable about two sons. And the point of the story, all right, you can go back and read it in Matthew 21. The point of the story is that those uh, that are at the temple, uh, th those that are outside the temple, prostitutes and tax collectors, are entering the kingdom of God before the religious folks. So that's story number one. He says, man, these prostitutes and these tax collectors, these that are kind of far from the Father, they're getting this better than you are, Pharisees. 
They're getting this better than you, religious teachers of the law and Sadducees. And that's story number one. Story number two is the parable of the tenants. And in this parable, Jesus identifies himself as the son, the cornerstone, uh, the one who was to come. And in that story, the religious tenants kill the son. Right? So he's telling a story about the Messiah, uh, about the one who is to come, and he's identifying himself in that way. And then he's saying, and guess what? I am going to be killed by the religious folks. That's story number two. And story number three is the parable of the wedding banquet. And then in that story, the wedding banquet is ready, but those that are invited to the wedding banquet kill the messenger. Right? So Jesus tells these stories. And you can just imagine, I mean, you know when a crowd's not with you, <laughs> right? When, they're, when, you're like, when I get up and say, hey, uh, welcome to Northwest Christian Church. Today we're talking about money. <laughs> right? Today we're talking about submission to authority, right? All the oxygen goes out of the room and I'm up here by myself, right? So you can, you can tell. And so Jesus is telling these stories And he's giving this wink and this nod to who he is, that he's the son of God, the savior, the Messiah. And then he's also publicly criticizing religious folks. And if there's one thing religious folks don't like, it is to be publicly criticized, right? And so they, after he tells these stories, these guys, it's, it's, these stories are part of the catalyst. They start plotting his death, all right? That's incident number two, is Jesus preaches a sermon. Incident number three is he's anointed with perfume, All right, let me show this one to you. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head while he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant, just like the religious folks. These are the closest followers of Jesus. Everyone's getting indignant about Jesus. They're indignant. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Yeah, they were really concerned about that, I'm sure. Uh, They they don't think they wanted it for the poor. That's just my personal opinion. But aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in her memory. So Jesus allows for what the disciples considered to be a wasteful act, and he allowed it because it was an act of worship. It was preparing him for burial. And we know it was right after this, all right. So after the three stories, the religious folks, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Caesar, all like, this guy's got to die. Right? After the, I mean, that's really quite a sermon. Right? Um, and after, at the end of the sermon, you know, it's like, all right, I'd like to offer an invitation time. Yeah, we're going to kill you. Right? Not exactly the response I'd hoped. You know? um, but th- this is exactly what happened to Jesus. And that's what happened with, with the religious leaders. We know it was after this story that Judas decided he was going to hand Jesus over. It was after this waste because we're, we're told later that uh, Judas loved money and, and this is so what, not what he expected from his Savior and his Messiah to, to waste this money that he decided to betray Jesus. So think, think about the stories and the teachings, all right? And now I want you to think about this. If you were trying to start a revolution, all right? And you were trying to start, a, let's say, a political revolution, let me ask you, what would you do? If you were trying to start a revolution, what would you do? 
If you were trying to do that, and if I were trying to do that, I'm guessing we would do two things, all right? This is just my opinion. But you would try to get the movers and the shakers and the influencers to your side, right? So you would identify these are the people of influence in the culture that I'm trying to create a revolution in. These are the people of influence, and I am going to do my best to get those people of influence on my side to help advocate for me. Right? So in Jesus' day, if you were trying to start a Jewish revolution, there were a couple categories of people that I think you would try to win over if that was your goal. Um, Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law. They had all the power, all the influence. I think this is who you would attempt to get if you were trying to start a, a religious or a political movement. Th- these are your allies. These are the people that you want on your side. Thing number two that you would do is you would attempt to secure as much money as you could, right? So you get all the influencers to the best of your ability on your side and then raise and gain as much money as you could because wars take uh, money, battles take money, uh, PR takes money, right? right? So Jesus would wanna secure or whoever would wanna secure as much money as he could and here's what I want you to see. He didn't do either of those things. He actually did the opposite of those things. He alienated the power base. He appears to waste money. Why? What is Jesus doing here? I'm so glad you asked that because I think it's critical to understanding the last week of his life. Jesus knew what was required of him. He knew what was coming and he knew his revolution, his movement, his kingdom was going to be launched a different way. It was not going to be launched through the execution of armies or battles or wars. It was not going to be launched in a traditional way. The Jesus revolution was going to be launched through his self-sacrifice. It wasn't through battles and armies and wars. It was him going to the cross and paying for our sins so that even though we are sinners, we could have the relationship with God we were created to have. So he knew his movement was not going to be launched in a traditional way. It wasn't going to be launched the way that you and I would launch something. We'd get all the power brokers on our side, we'd raise as much money as we could, and we'd go to battle. That's what we would do. That's not what Jesus did, because he knew his thing was different. So it was going to be launched through his self-sacrifice, and it was going to be launched through his subsequent resurrection, so that we would know that we had the power and the ability to live the way he lived, right? To, To love the way he loved, to serve the way that he served. He would die and resurrect and give us his Holy Spirit so we could live different lives. So here's what I want you to see about Jesus because I think this is so interesting. The basis of 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 his revolution was not political. If it was political, he would do exactly what I described. He'd get everybody on his side, he'd raise a bunch of money. The basis of his revolution was not political, it was love. It wasn't power, it was sacrifice. It wasn't physical, it was spiritual. And everybody thought, every single person thought in this day that the Messiah would drive out Rome and set himself up as an earthly king and that's just not what Jesus came to do. It's just not what he came to do. He didn't drive Rome out. Rome would be an occupying force for quite some time. He didn't drive Rome out. He didn't set himself up as an earthly king in the center of Jerusalem. It's not what he came to do. He came to forgive sin. He came to connect us to God. 
He came to show us life. He came to guarantee us heaven. He came to give us his Holy Spirit so we could live different lives. So the catalyst of his movement was never going to be money. The catalyst for the Jesus movement was never going to be get as many influencers and as much money as you could. The catalyst for his movement was so much better than that. The catalyst for his movement was the resurrection. And that is so much better than a $1,000 check for the Jesus movement. Right here, Jesus, I love what you're doing. Go set yourself up in earthly kingdom. No, the, the basis of his move, movement was not going to be money. It was not going to be political. It was the resurrection because here's what is true and here's what Jesus knew. And it's so important that we understand this. This movement was for Jews and Gentiles. It was for Romans. It was for you. It was for me. It was for everybody. And here's the truth of the matter. Some people didn't like that. Some people didn't like that. They wanted him to be a political savior and a world leader. And when it became clear what kind of savior he was going to be, the crowds turned on him. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm not launching this with all the influencers. And I'm not launching this with all this money because I want you to know what I'm doing is different. What I'm doing, it is for the Romans. We hate the Romans. It's for the Romans. It's for the Gentiles. No, God's always worked through the Jewish people. Yeah, he still loves the Jewish people, but this is for the Gentiles too. It is for the Jewish folks. It is for the rich. It is for the poor. It is for the Caucasian. It's for the African-American. It is for everyone. And so he launched his crusade a different way. And so here's what I want to encourage you with. Whenever you are tempted to think that we are fighting a political fight as Christians, it's like we got to win politically. Whenever you're tempted to think that, let me assure you, we are not. It's okay to like politics. I like politics. But politics divide us. Jesus is for everyone. Whenever you're tempted to think that we are fighting like a power fight, that we have to get in control of something, we have to control this culture. We are not. That is not our battle. The essence of Christianity is to lay down your power and to serve. Whenever you're tempted to think that we are in a physical fight, I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul said. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of this dark age. It is spiritual. So this Jesus that we love and serve this time of year, I want you to know and I hope this is not controversial, but I want you to know he is for the Republican and he is for the Democrat. He is for the Caucasian and he's for the African American. He is for the United States and he is for Iran. He is for the rich and he is for the poor. He is for everyone. And this is why Jesus launched it the way that he did. And our job is to introduce everyone as often as we can, to introduce them to Jesus and let them make up their own mind about him. So the greatest thing you can do as a Christian, the greatest thing you can do as a Christian is to follow the example of Jesus and love. And it sounds quippy, and it sounds simplistic, but this is a battlefield. If you are a Republican, this is figuring out how you love a Democrat. If you are a Democrat, this is figuring out how you love a Republican. And you're like, that sounds very difficult. It is. 
right? If you live on one side of town, this is trying to figure out how you love the person on the other side of town. If you are, uh, if you are one ethnicity, this is trying to figure out how you love the other ethnicity. If this is, uh, you don't get along with your neighbor, this is figuring out how to love them. This is the battlefield of Christianity. It is not political, it is not social, it is not normal. The the battlefield of Christianity is love. So the greatest thing we can do as Christians is to battle in the arena of love, to figure that out. The greatest thing we can do is to follow the example of Jesus and self-sacrifice. I love love, uh, a speaker, we do a conference every year, and yesterday one of the speakers said that our new uh, our new apologetic is service. That one of the ways that we prove the faith, one of the ways that we prove how we love about Jesus is through service and sacrifice. And I think that's true. So one of the greatest things we can do as Christians is to sacrifice. And one of the greatest things we can do is introduce people to Jesus and let them make up their mind about him. Right? Jesus doesn't need us to win an argument. He doesn't need us to win a political battle. He doesn't need us to win the culture. He needs us to introduce people to him and let them decide. And this is why the Jesus movement started in such a different way, and it's ultimately why people turned from him. No, 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 Jesus, you don't understand what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to drive out Rome, set yourself up as king, and be a political leader. And Jesus said, I I love you. That's not what I came to do. I came to forgive sin. I came to offer people new life. I came to guarantee people heaven. I came to show them the way, the truth, and the life. And I came to offer it to everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Jesus movement. And Lord, sometimes, I enjoy studying culture and I enjoy studying politics and I've got my favorite shows and I like to watch them and sometimes I can kind of start to think that's where our battle is. It's not. Our battle is in the arena of love. To figure out how we love people that are different than us, how we love people that think differently than us, how we love people that are right next door to us that maybe we don't get along with, that your gospel breaks down political barriers, social barriers, racial barriers. It breaks down every barrier. But we need Christians to fight in this arena of love internally to say, I want to figure out how to love the way that Jesus loved. Help me to do it, Lord. Help us to do it. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to celebrate his example right now uh, through this uh, sacrament of communion. And it's an opportunity to remember what Jesus came to do, that he came to offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could know God in this life and in the next, to demonstrate love to everyone, to offer it to everyone. And so we want to remember that right now. And we want to remember that this is not just for us Sometimes when we're taking it, we can become very kind of self-focused because we've got those two kind of cups stacked on top of each other and we're holding it like to ourselves. And so it can kind of almost, the way we do it can almost make us think like this is just for us. But today I want us to remember that this is for everyone. 
It's for everyone. It's the person who looks just like you, the person that looks just like you, and the person that is different from you in every single way that a person can be different. It's for all of us. It's offered to all of us. And so we want to remember that right now as we receive communion. Like I said, you'll find uh, two cups stacked on top of each other. One has uh, the bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And just a remembrance of thank you for what you accomplished, Lord. Help me to love the way that you have loved.